Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international image and reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And in today's episode, we're going to be thinking about the future uh, and how ideas of the future intersect with international image and the ways in which nation states present themselves to the world. Now, this is something that comes up for me as a historian. And uh, when I look at the world today, I can see how, well, I compare it to um, a a tightrope, Simon. And and the idea works like this. If you're going to walk across a tightrope in a, a at all, but especially if there's some instability, the way you you stabilize yourself is by looking either at where you've come from or where you are going. And we can see in the world today that many nations are getting their stability by uh, focusing on the past, where they've come from, with um, exaggerated ideas uh, about their, their uh, past achievements, national origins, and uh, very often suffering. Uh, but a, maybe a more constructive way of uh, focusing is to focus on uh, a vision of the, the, the future. And uh, I, you know, I know that part of the reason the world was able to get over the First World War, the Second World War, to come out of the, the Cold War was because of uh, the articulation of visions of the future that was so attractive that not only did did allies want to join in, but even adversaries thought, well, there's something there for us, something we can uh, go to, go for. Uh, and um, the only way um, to return to a theme that we've articulated in these, these conversations previously, that countries are going to be willing to cooperate to um, engage the big problems of our our, our present, particularly climate, is if they have a vision of working together, a vision of doing so. So uh, a future vision, making the world a better place, uh, a realizable vision. This uh, has been very important historically and seems to be a missing dimension right now. Uh, what are you thinking and seeing around uh, visions of the future and how they're articulated by countries in the world right now? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the, there are, of course, two two sides to the story of the future of a nation. One is the domestic socio-political side. In other words, uh, what do leaders or would-be leaders tell the population about their their dream, their vision for the future, where we would like to go. And then there's the other question about how that nation's uh, plans or progress are perceived by others in other countries outside their own borders. And although the future has always provided um, fertile territory for a certain kind of politician, it's not really so fertile when it comes to the way in which countries present themselves to the international community. For the simple reason that most people, as I say over and over again in these conversations, don't appear to be terribly interested in other countries. And they, to the extent that they're interested at all in other countries, they're interested in what they're up to right now. 
how much of a threat they are, whether they're doing well, whether they're doing badly. Uh, second to that, they may be a little bit interested in what they've done in the past, and very often that governs what they believe about what they're doing right now. In many cases, what countries have done in the past is an obsession for people outside that country's border. So if you happen to have a neighbor who attacked or brutalized you 100 years ago, that may be almost literally the only thing you think about that country. And where does that leave people's notions about the future of other countries? Well, nowhere, really, because it takes a certain amount of effort, doesn't it, to, to think about the future. By definition, it's a thing that doesn't exist. And you need to conjure it up. And that takes time, it takes imagination, it takes data, it takes um, goodwill, it takes a certain willingness to want to do that. How many people are prepared to go with you and do that about a country where they don't live, mm -hmm. where they seldom visit, with which they probably have relatively uh, little to do? It's very difficult. And I see a lot of governments fantasizing about uh, somehow projecting themselves as a forward-looking country the country that's going to save the world from climate change, the country that's going to fix uh, migration, the country that's going to fix pandemics in the future or whatever it is. And I find myself very often in the, in the position of having to curb their enthusiasm a little and say, it's very, very difficult to get people interested in other countries in any way. To get them interested right. in things that that country hasn't even done yet is next to impossible. So I think from the external point of view, getting yourself thought of as a country of the future is enormously difficult. And it's not just one more point before, before I, I hand back to you. Um, it's particularly difficult right now because the future in the sense of uh, an imaginary positive future is becoming rapidly a taboo topic. Yes. The only kind of future that anybody lets themselves talk about or believe in right now is a bad future, a future of climate change, a future of overpopulation, a future of violence, a future of pandemics one after another. We're very depressed, most of us on the planet at this particular moment. And under those kinds of circumstances, it's not really surprising that looking backwards appears uh, safer and more comforting than looking forwards. Well, it's almost, if you look at how fiction responds to ideas of the future, there seems to be a sort of a fictional consensus that in the future, teenagers will have to fight each other and uh, will be living in a dystopian wilderness. Uh, if you look along the young adult bookshelf uh, in uh, your local bookstore, um, and uh, where do you find or whose job is it who is able to um, articulate a, a viable vision of the uh, uh, of the future. I mean, which nation states are most uh, effective in imagining a, 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 a future? Is there anybody that you, you see doing it effectively? Um, well, of course, one one mustn't overlook the fact that the United Arab Emirates even created a ministry for the future, and I think a couple of other uh, countries have, have copied that idea. The, the, the idea is certainly a powerful one, the idea that you know, government needs to have experts thinking about future scenarios. I mean, that's 
so basic that one is tempted to say, duh, why haven't you been doing that all along? Because uh, scenario planning is a fundamental element of any kind of planning. And it's remarkable, actually, how few governments really do do systematic um, future work, thinking about even not, not even necessarily uh, planning projects for the future, but just looking at future risks and future eventualities. The UK government uh, has been doing that, as we know, for some time, um, not well enough and not enough. And most importantly, the voices that do it aren't listened to enough by government. But it is one of the, um, the one of the better countries. In fact, interestingly, in the UK, it's very often been the military that does the best work in that area. Yes. And not purely in a military yeah, context. Um, the US does, of course, because the US does everything that can be done. Um, beyond that, well, uh, the usual suspects, <laughs> the, the hipster nations, uh, but particularly the Nordics, um, do a certain amount of this kind of scenario planning. But in terms of creating visions for the future, it's normally these rather trite uh, populist uh, party political um, narratives, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, variations on the, the five-year plan, the thousand-year right. right. Um, I, I thought it was really, uh, it's, it's a very hipster idea, but I loved that the city of Oslo established a library of the future mm-hmm. and each year commissions um, a novelist to write a book which will be published uh, in a hundred years from the foundation of the library, and that they've planted a forest which will have grown sufficiently to be felled and pulped to uh, mm. make the pages of the book, uh, the books as as they are as they are published. I think that that kind of long termism uh, I find um, inspirational at a time when uh, there are so many um, so much emphasis on. Uh, coming disasters. And of mm. course, we have to hear about the coming disasters, but um, you know, people need a, a, a spark of hope to be able to respond if effectively. The, tr- the trouble is, if it's coming from politicians uh, and the stock of politicians around the world is generally so low these days, um, yes. people are more likely to interpret that as being in very poor taste, uh, considering how bad things look. Um, if you're looking forward to a winter where you can't pay your gas bill in, in, in Europe um, or in many other parts of the world, um, even worse, significantly worse. I mean, you know, large parts of the world are facing famine as a result of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, in the coming year or two, mass global famine. And for politicians to be, uh, to be, to be uh, singing nursery rhymes about a beautiful future where everything works and everything's better and everyone's equal and everyone's happy. That can look like the, the height of cynicism and, and idiocy. So, of course, the tone and the source of the predictions has to come from the right place. I mean, which, which future-leaning voices do people listen to? It's very interesting and, it, and it's absolutely emblematic of the, of the generations that are, that are appearing now that the only mildly positive versions of the future we ever hear are, are visions of the future in which future is synonymous with technology. Um, yes. And that's typical of the of the, the younger generations who've been who've been brought up to revere technology as their religion. So a man like yes. Elon Musk, who really does uh, have visions for the future, those are first and foremost technological visions. And yes. um, uh, 
what's noticeable by its absence uh, are visions for the future that are societal, cultural, political. Technology is easy because that's always in the future and it's always better. And, and it's technology, always cheaper, it's you know, uh, technology is also uh, neutral. Um, it, you know, it, it, it has a small flag um, mm. on, on, on it. Uh, I think it, the, uh, of nations, the one that seems to have the most developed idea of the future is China. Uh, mm. And as far as you know, China's concerned, it's on a long-term trajectory uh, and wants the future to be much more Chinese uh, mm. than, the, than the present and mm. is planning accordingly. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, technology is uh, obviously uh, uh, part of that. Yes, but but not, but not all of it by any means. And and um, if you take, uh, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is um, very significantly old-fashioned uh, hardware, um, dig, digging stuff up and building uh, building infrastructure. Then. Um, then uh, China, China's vision of the future is appears to be much more than just a vision because it's it's, it's backed up by by shovels in the ground, um, right? And, and, and that that has often in the past been the the the, the way the style uh, the dialectic of Chinese policy making. The leaders have almost invariably spoken about uh, the future alongside the past. In fact, the phrase that one is tempted to use is "glorious destiny." Um, and the, the way that uh, Chinese populism works is to speak of the glorious destiny of the people, um, which generally speaking people buy into. Now, obviously, you couldn't use that line in very many countries, particularly not in the, in the West, because people would be scornful of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder, how do you think China compares with Russia, for example? You could argue that Vladimir Putin is, uh, has a vision of the future for Russia that he's presenting to his people. Is that the same thing? Well, I think his vision of the future is uh, much more focused on the idea of restoration. And okay, mm -hmm. there's an element of restoration in the Chinese vision, an idea that, that China will be once again the uh, prime, uh, you know, the, the, the great source of innovation, uh, mm -hmm. a powerful uh, player in the world, uh, as it was um, you know, 300 years ago, uh, yeah. turning the um, subjugation of China in the 19th and early 20th century into a into a great anomaly. Um, uh, you know, there, there's that element in the Chinese vision, but uh, I, I think that the the the, the Russian uh, vision of the future is a kind of a fantasy of how wonderful things were in the 19th century and of of, of Russia's uh, significance, a blend of um, the best bits of the czars and the best bits of the of the Soviet Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, cosmonaut czar kind of um, uh, idea. And not uh, actually having an agenda for changing anything, whereas uh, your Belt and Road is sort of almost like re-engineering uh, the um, world trade routes uh, yes. to be uh, to the benefit of um, of China going yes. forward, um, and in in much the same way that the United States had a vision of the future following World War II, 
and could see the benefit of um, the Marshall Plan as a way of building networks of cooperation for mutual benefit. You know, the, yes. I like that you're using the word um, destiny because that's a word that comes up a lot uh, in the uh, writing culture of imperialism. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a reminder that the imperial projects of the 19th century uh, manifest destinies of various countries were, were, were uh, visions of the future and had an agenda um, mm. to which people worked, for which people uh, made personal sacrifices. Yes, yes. Um, but how do we have uh, ideas of um, uh, you know, agendas and destinies that are more constructive uh, than uh, uh, conquest? Uh, yeah. Can we get the same kind of energy around conquering um, uh, shared challenges rather than um, neighbors or um, territories distant from us? Yes, it's interesting when you were when you were mentioning um, the political rhetoric in the United States after the Second World War. Shortly after we'd been speaking about uh, Putin, it, I couldn't help but but observe. Uh, that the Donald Trump really was America's Putin. You you could hardly you could hardly fit a, sli- a piece of paper in between "Make America Great Again" and 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 "Make Russia the Soviet Union Again." Um, yes, both almost identical examples of something of of a a kind of um, populist reimagination of the past masquerading as a vision for the future. Yes, no, I think that I think that there's a lot to be uh, a lot to be said for that, and also the idea of speaking to a, a country's sense of its victimhood, and um, uh, or or a group within a country having a sense of victimhood in the, in the case of 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 Trump, but the real yeah. Trumpers feel that they've been left behind by twenty yeah. first uh, century and uh, are getting a raw deal and need to be. Uh, need need to be um, uh, restored personally and collectively. So yeah, yeah absolutely. There's, it's a very similar um, mental process going on. Yeah. But to uh, go it's to also the... about the way in which propaganda works. That the, mm. the propagandist will always, or the effective propagandist, tells you something you've always thought, not something yeah. you've never heard before. It's yeah. just uh, you've always thought it. You haven't heard it from a political leader. Right. And it's right. that experience of hearing, but your your inner thought. But um, surely people have inner thoughts about uh, making the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that it's a common thought that if we all work together, uh, yeah. maybe we could make a difference. Yes. Uh, and to try and um, promote those uh, those kinds of uh, of um, uh, thoughts too. Uh, is 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 the challenge, and yes. maybe this isn't something that nation states can do. Well, I was going, uh, I was going to say that, that that is the problem, isn't it? Because I think what what we lack um, is the individual leader or group of leaders who can who can sell that vision of a collective collaborative future. Because almost by definition, national leaders fear that they will lose points by doing so amongst their own uh, domestic crowd. So most national leaders, if they start talking attractively of a collaborative shared future, 
fear that their voters are going to say yes, but at whose cost? And you shouldn't be thinking about the whole world, you should be thinking about us, particularly today in, in, in times of strife and struggle. And again, I mean, this does bring us back to President Xi, who perhaps has more uh, more leeway, more margin to take risks like that than um, democratic leaders. But he does talk about a world that's better for everybody. He does actually very often talk a pure good country spiel, uh, the harmonious mm -hmm. rise of China um, and the future of humanity is collaboration and cooperation. Some days I almost feel as if he's read my stuff. <laughs> <That's a> joke, <laughs> by the way. Um, and, 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 and he can sort of get away with that um, because he doesn't have to worry, obviously, about uh, whether he's going to be voted for at the next election or not. But beyond that particular example, are there any international leaders? No, there aren't. The, the United Nations is the one uh, body which, more than any other, is supposed to talk about these kinds of things. Right. But it doesn't have a single voice. It doesn't even have an audible voice. Um, and, um, you know, I don't happen to think that the current Secretary General is particularly gifted in this way, but we've seldom, if ever, had um, uh, an SG who's been able to speak to the world in such a way that the world listens and is mobilized and inspired. And that's partly at least because the, the organization that he always has been a he comes from um, is, is, is not well known either. So it's not even as famous as another country. Most people around the world don't seem to know what the United Nations is or what it's for. So there's, there's, a, there's a vacuum there where um, a powerful, uniting, forward-looking vision of the future would be expressed if there were such a thing. And, and so this then, I think in my response to this is that um, it reminds us of the value of the moments of collective vision of the future. And I know you hate them from the nation branding standpoint, uh, mm. but expos and world's fairs have this heritage of being the places where, albeit for national uh, reasons, mm. uh, countries have got together to share visions of the future. Yeah, but they're and, not, they're not uh, really... That's the rhetoric, but they're not actually sharing them. What the expos are, are a space where countries can trot out their competing visions for the future. Um, and, and because it's a commercial environment, because they're paying for this platform, and because it's fundamentally only justifiable as a would-be money-making um, event, uh, it's purely competitive. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a big contradiction at the very heart of it. You can't. Well, I talk. think it's actually. I think that, it, that they've. It's there's. They've. If you look at it historically, there's always been a collaborative element, and right now, wise countries are presenting themselves as potential collaborators. Mm. So, for example, in in Dubai, there was a big sign at the entrance to the Swedish pavilion saying, "What can we do together?" Mm. Uh, sort of inviting collaboration. And mm. it was the much more, um, uh, you know, limited uh, vision was pretty obvious in the countries that only talked about, uh, you know, new technologies they had um, that they were, were hoping other people would buy or opportunities for investment. Mm. Uh, but the, 
an emphasis on collaboration and uh, collectivity uh, or collective response is, uh, I, I think, is is there. And um, you would also have, uh, uh, you know, at expos, a responsibility of the organizers to mm. articulate um, a, a, a a vision. Uh, and you know, historically, this has been the the case that the organizers themed pavilions. Yes. Uh, have yes. uh, talked about how things might be. And, and I, I think that uh, these have been opportunities for corporations to uh, express visions of the, of, of, of the future. Hmm. Um, I, I was just thinking the only... Uh, sorry, I, I, I was just thinking the only, the only other forum I can think of um, that ever seems to produce anything like an international consensus on the where we need to go and how we're going to get there is Davos, rather ironically. Now, ironically, because of course um, it's frequently and increasingly lambasted in the popular press around the world mm-hmm. as being um, the secretive meeting place of um, exceedingly privileged uh, corporate demons uh, who want to control and rule the world with their globalization. Um, nonetheless, uh, those are the conversations that are had at Davos, and some of the some of the thinking that comes out of Davos is very much along those lines. Whether it's good or bad, I make no comment. But what comes out of Davos is very much this is where we think collectively that we need to go. Now, the Expo, in theory, at any rate, is more democratic than that because the participants mm-hmm. are governments, which in many cases are elected, and in the other cases, at least, are tolerated by their populations. Um, uh, but, but I think you know the more examples of this sort one looks at, and the Olympics try to do the same thing. Of course, it's in the sidelines because the main event is the sport. But along the sidelines, yes. there are lots of statements, high-sounding statements, about the power of sport to bring the planet together and all the rest of it. But all of this is marginal, and I think that what's really, really missing is the is the single voice and the perhaps the institution behind it. Well, this is why I tried to set up a new country, um, mm-hmm. a country that didn't have its own national self-interest at heart, that had collective self-interest at heart, because, because that actor, that player, that voice is, is as I said before, just, just missing. And it's very difficult to imagine where else it's going to come from. Because people really respond to individuals. They don't tend to respond to institutions. They find it difficult to... Um, sympathize or empathize with organizations, especially clumsy international bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think part of the problem here is the way in which so many religions have a a trajectory that is, um, should we say, it allows negative ideas of the future, that there's an inevitable apocalypse, Mm. uh, that things will get worse and then we'll be magically saved, Mm. Um, that that what we're talking about is the idea of humanity getting together and and saving itself. Mm. That is not something that a a lot of at least um, uh, conventionally articulated religion um, Mm. uh, 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 talks about. It it Mm. seems to be the opposite of that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, 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 and that's why so many religions struggle in the modern age, because they are fundamentally about depriving individual human beings of their agency. Um, man, man is a sinner. Human beings are weak. Only God is strong. 
Um, and it and it's 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 wrong and it's presumptuous to imagine that human beings can do anything other than just behave themselves and keep out of trouble. Um, having said that, um, the the world's religions are one of the better candidates for that single voice if two things happen. One, they stop being so obsessed with presenting competing visions of society, mm-hmm. of humanity, and of the future. And two, they're prepared to abandon some of this idea, some of these notions about humanity basically being doomed, that there's a distant paradise which we can never reach because we'll never be good enough. Um, they need to start thinking quite seriously about um, what a paradise on earth might be and how we could yes. possibly get there. And one that we as human beings deserve because otherwise yes. there's no point of even, you know, even talking about it. Yes, and you know, make the best of this current world that God has given us, rather than insisting on, um, you know, an etch-a-sketch moment of shaking it all up and starting a, a, um, again at mm. some point. You know, I, I think that's. Um, I, I agree. I agree with. Uh, I agree with that. As we think about drawing this to a conclusion, then the, the, a key point seems to be to try and find uh, for. Um, uh, places where visions of the future can be articulated and people who can credibly uh, do it. So um, uh, it would seem that, uh, you know, writers uh, thinking about the future positively, uh, institutions, even an institution like, um, you know, Disney, which has historically had Tomorrowland as one of its one of its features. I mean, mm. These are actually quite important as a counter voice to the um, to, to the negative um, impulse we, we we seem all to have regarding the future, and rightly to be so concerned about uh, the problems we need to face. Mm. And countries that are willing to articulate a future, even if it's going to be people that we have to um, work hard to uh, work with, like. Um, uh, Xi Jinping's China, yeah. um, but there's, th- that seems to be the way the landscape is. And um, uh, but with, without um, a dialogue around f- the future, um, mm. we're not going to be able to move forward. No, and without uh, and without some kind of preparedness to believe that human beings are basically all right. Because the problem we've got at the moment, I think, is that the um, the last two, if not three generations have grown up hearing only negative voices about humanity. And if every single day of, the, of your life, from the day you were born, if you're in your teens or your 20s today, the only things you have ever heard about humanity is how it screwed up everything, how everything it touches um, is, is corrupted or destroyed. And just psychologically speaking that is profoundly depressing it has a profoundly depressive effect on your state of mind and i think that we've got a very serious situation that all the voices coming out of the media and consequently all the voices that are reflected from the media within society are saying that humanity is lost beyond redemption and that we are the most dangerous creatures on the planet and we're incapable of doing anything good or worthwhile and therefore we are doomed this is the world I think that young people live in today. And it's mm-hmm. difficult to imagine how they could be anything other than deeply cynical 
of any view of the future, even the most attractive one. They just won't believe it. So we've got a credibility gap to overcome first. Right. Yeah, and um, uh, and fiction, uh, positive fictional visions seems to be part part of that. You know, uh, thinking about the world imagined by Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, where you know human beings have been able to work together to overcome their um, their difficulties on Earth, and were able to go out and encounter difficulties in out in space instead. But it's a, uh, but, it's a, a but it's a colonial thing. story. It's a colonist oh, yeah, story. Yeah, but what a positive uh, context that had. And it, wasn't it nice growing up that, that it was possible to imagine not being destroyed and uh, moving forward to, to a, uh, something, um, something better? Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, 90% or more of all the science fiction that's been written since the genre was invented in the late 19th century has been dystopian in one way or another. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because it's easier to write or it's more fun to read or, or, or whether science fiction writers are depressive by nature, but um, there is a terrible risk that, um, that stories about a nice future uh, just seem by comparison as if they don't have much meat on them, nothing much to, to chew, nothing much to get your teeth into. It's the negativity bias. Well, somebody has to... Um... Uh, find a way of bringing us together around around a uh, a, a vision mm. and uh, articulating that vision uh, is a major communication problem for our our time mm. and you know, hopefully conversations like this uh, can at least flag the need um, and. Um, lead to further conversations. Yep. You and I can't fix it by ourselves, but I'm glad that we've, it's been an interesting thing to, uh, to talk about. On that note, um, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I will continue to be Simon Anhalt. <laughs>